This morning's reading can be found on page 1018 of the blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and we'll just be reading through the first half of verse 10. Verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray together. O Lord, bless the preaching of your word that What I say, what we meditate on might be pleasing in your sight. That we would live out your gracious promises ever more fully in our lives. Oh Lord, bless us to that end. Amen. I'm presently reading a fascinating book. It's written in 1988, but still a a great book. And it's it's by uh, Timothy Ferris, entitled... The Coming of Age of the Milky Way. And it describes how mankind came to understand the workings of our solar system and came to understand just how far away everything is in our universe. Now, man has always had a fascination with uh, the skies. Uh, Even Socrates, who didn't like astronomy himself, did say that the soul was, quote, purified and kindled afresh. By studying the sky. And the stars have helped mankind from the beginning practically. They help men know, uh, people know when to plant and when to sow. They help sailors to know what time it is and and to navigate. Uh, In the Mediterranean, you can navigate your latitude, north and south, by watching the pole stars, the star Polaris, uh, as to how far it is above the horizon. And it even was in poetry, even among, uh, even with Homer, like 
hundred years to a thousand years before Christ. He spoke of the bear. He says, the bear never bathes. And what he's referring to is the constellation, Ursa Major, the bear, and the fact that when you're in the Mediterranean Sea and you're looking at the ocean horizon, the bear never gets below the horizon. So the bear never bathes. Beautiful little statement. But the problem all along, even though we had this fascination, even though there's this great use of the stars, is that we really didn't understand how far things were away and how they worked. And the major problem, the fatal flaw was we thought the earth was at the center of everything. Okay. Now, if it is at the center, they can't, everything can't be that far away and it can't be that big. Uh, for instance, we know that the earth rotates 365 days around the sun. Uh, Saturn, almost 30 years it takes to go around the sun. But here you have all of these things, all these stars and sun, and they go around the earth every day. Right? That's what we thought. These things go around the earth every single day. Well, they couldn't be that far away, right? That's why uh, Icarus in, his, in the legend, when he had his wings and flew up a few thousand feet, he got burned up and fell into the, uh, the sea. Got too close to the sun. Of course, now if you're at 50,000 feet, it's like 60 degrees below zero. A little bit different than burning your wings. Uh, And also, the early Greeks like Heraclitus and Lucretius thought that the sun was about the size of a shield. Okay, And it's interesting that uh, Anaxagoras, Anaxagoras... thought that maybe it was as big as the Peloponnesus. That is the little uh, peninsula at the bottom of Greece. It's about the size of New Jersey. He got banished for irreverence because he thought the sun might be as big as New Jersey, right? (laughs) Well, eventually, of course, it was discovered that the sun was the center of our solar system. Not without a lot of pain. Galileo was banned. He was imprisoned for believing this by the church. Calvin and Luther opposed the view that the sun was at the center of the universe. But sure enough, the facts keep rolling in. And finally, it's proven, uh, even mathematically by Newton, of the uh, order of the planets that they're in this wonderful ellipsis around the sun. And then finding out that the sun is one of hundreds of billions of stars in our one galaxy that is a hundred million light years across. And it's just one of maybe a hundred billion galaxies that we've seen so far. And they think maybe there are 200 billion more to be seen. <laughs> well... We've really come a long way, and that's why he calls it the coming of age in the Milky Way, to come to see what everything is. But as to the solar system itself, Newton called this suns and planets and comets this most beautiful system. And many scientists have likened it to a glorious dance that goes around the sun all the time. 
And I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones treats this in her devotional book for children, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. Very first page when she talks about creation. And it's entitled, Dance. Okay? In the beginning, God sang everything into being. This sounds like C.S. Lewis and Aslan. He sang everything into being for the joy of it and set the whole universe dancing. God was in the center At the heart of everything, like the dance of the planets before the sun, turning, spinning, circling, wheeling, revolving, orbiting around and around, God made everything in his world and in his universe and in his children's hearts to center around him in a wonderful dance of joy. It's the dance you were born for. As we, as using the image of a planet, she is, uh, of us, the planets revolving around the sun and our lives revolving around God. Then the very next page, cataclysm. He's talking about the fall. She's talking about the fall here. What if the planets put themselves at the center instead of the sun? Kids, what would happen? A planet decides, I'm going to go to the center of the universe, uh, of the solar system. I'm going to take over the sun's position. That would be disastrous, right? That's not where they belong. The Bible says that's what it was like when we sinned. God made his children's hearts to join together in the wonderful dance of joy, orbiting and circling around him. But we put ourselves in the center instead of God. We put ourselves in God's place, which is what sin is. It broke God's perfect world. And now our hearts are out of step with God and the universe and each other and our own selves. But God had a plan and a rescuer. One day Jesus would come to take the cataclysm of our sin into his own heart and lead us back into the dance of joy. You see, Second Peter is about putting ourselves at the center instead of God. It's about these teachers with this destructive teaching that put man at the center instead of Christ, instead of God. And when we do this, when we put ourselves at the center, it spells disaster just like it would if a planet tried to do the same. You'd put yourself at the center of your marriage instead of God and things are going to fall apart. You put yourself at the center of any relationship, it won't flourish. When people put themselves at the center of a church, whether they're leaders or, or, just, or members, it will not prosper. And when you're at the center of your universe, just like they had everything distorted when it looked like they thought the earth was the center, everything is distorted. You don't see life correctly. You don't see others correctly. Because you think they're supposed to revolve around me. They're supposed to meet my needs. They're supposed to meet my desires and do what I want them to do. And of course, they're thinking the same thing. Thus, our constant conflict as human beings. And so, Scripture gives us a whole different model. As Philippians 2 says, Paul says, count one another as more important than yourselves. So you see, in my revolving around God, I begin to revolve around others to meet their needs, 
to serve them. Even Jesus said, the Lord, he called himself the Son of Man. It's a title of his lordship. He said, even the Son of Man didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve. In my lordship and kingship, I've come to meet the needs of others and serve them. So, Second Peter is written to warn people of the imminent danger of such a path of destruction when people begin to put themselves at the center instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's much to say in this passage about the consequences of this, the consequences of this teaching, and we're going to save that for next week as we join that with the second part of this chapter. But we're going to talk about two characteristics of this teaching. It's greed and it's sensuality. Two characteristics of the teaching of these false teachers. Their greed and their sensuality. Now, he, call, he says at, in verse 1 that there will be these false teachers uh, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And when he says secretly bring in, that's the idea of bringing in something foreign. Something that's not according to Christ, not according to the church. Foreign stuff coming from the outside. And the heresies means a certain school of thought. So they're bringing in this teaching that is foreign to what uh, Scripture says. And he talks about the word, he he uses false words in verse 3. This means made up words. So stuff that people are making up in their own heads replacing the word of God with that and teaching others to walk in that life. And you'll see how these two things, this sensuality, this greed, reflect their attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ. First, notice it says in verse 2, they are denying the master who bought them. Denying the master who who bought them. So by engaging in greed and sensuality, they're saying absolutely no to Jesus Christ, refusing him, rejecting him because they're rejecting his way. So we don't only deny him by our mouths, say, I deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, or I deny that God is real, or that Jesus is risen from the dead, those kinds of things. We deny him by our very lives. That's what he is talking about. Not so much the actual teaching, though that's included, but the kind of lives these teachers were living in their sensuality and their greed. And so, as one writer says, they deny their sovereign Lord in that they do not obey him. And the other thing that he says is that they despise authority, verse 10. And so when we walk in the way of greed and sensuality, we are actually despising Christ and despising his authority. Jesus said in John 14, whoever has my commandment and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And so these teachers that would not keep his word, that would replace that word, are denying that Lord and they're despising his 
authority. And so it points this out that Christianity is not just a set of doctrines to be believed, but it's a whole way of life to be lived. It's actually called the way in Acts. And this points to the whole lifestyle that it's called to. We, in a sense, are all apprentices of Jesus Christ. To be like Christ, to imitate Christ, to live out the love of Christ. I recently had to study a little bit about apprenticeship in old uh, painter's studios. And over a course of years, a young boy would come into a painter's studio and he'd have to learn about preparing paints. He'd have to learn about preparing surfaces and materials and instruments. And then the rudiments of drawing and finally painting itself. He would begin helping the master in the easier parts of his paintings and then the harder parts of his paintings. And finally, he would be able to produce a painting of his own that the studio could sell. All with this in view that he one day could become a master painter. And he could have his own studio, right? But this long course of apprenticeship to become a... Well, he wasn't just sitting around listening and watching and learning facts. He was painting. We're apprentices of Jesus called to live a whole new life of love that Christ enables us to live a whole way of life. And we can deny him by our lives. This is very similar to the third commandment, which says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And most of us think of this primarily as taking his name in vain, that is using his name in a terrible way, using his name in a way that dishonors his name in a casual way. And this is true. This certainly is an issue. Even in our day, the common OMG that's just everywhere in the world, right? And it's not anything like what Thomas said in John 20 when he says, Oh, my Lord and my God. See? An address to Jesus as his God. An address of honor and and reverence and submission and trust and adoration. That's what my God is supposed to be. Oh, my God, save me. Oh, my Lord and my God, rescue me. Oh, forgive me, etc. But I was just used to make a point, you know. Just trashing his name anytime we want to. Now, we can address that. But this is addressing how we take his name in vain by living in a way that trashes his name. Because we are associated with him and we are supposed to represent him and demonstrate his life. And when we don't, we take his name in vain because we're not holding up him up with absolute honor. This is what Second Peter is talking about, denying him with our lives, taking his name in vain with our lives. Let's look a little, that's the, the general idea of these two things of, of greed and, and sensuality and how it's a despising of Christ, how it's a denial of Christ, how it's taking God's name in vain. Let's look a little more closely at each one of those. Greed, for instance. Now it says, notice... In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. It's very interesting that this week, my brother sent me uh, some online hoopla about yet another televangelist who's raising money to buy himself a jet for ministry. Okay? This one costs $65 million. Just look it up. Televangelist wants a new jet. You'll see it. 
Um, and what's so sad, he's not the only one. We know of local men have done the same. And when these people have their incredible cars, their incredible houses, and incredible furnishings, spending millions and millions of people's money, without fail, they teach heresy. They're teaching false things about Jesus. They're teaching false things about wealth and health. It's a whole different gospel. And I wrote back to my brother. I said, I can't believe you sent me this week because here's what I'm preaching on. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. I don't know what else would fit better. And here's the sad thing. They're exploiting the people of God that Jesus bought with his own blood. In Acts 20, 28, Paul is exhorting the elders and he says, Shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And the point is, this is a precious body of people. Jesus has spent himself lavishly and demonstrated his love for these people. You care for them in some way that looks like that tender care. You honor Christ's sacrifice in the way you would sacrifice for these people. Here, these people with their own made-up doctrines exploiting God's people for their own greed. But easy to look outside of ourselves, right? We have to ask ourselves, what about my greed? What about my love of money? As Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Same idea here, right? Destructive teaching about having money, gaining money. Along with this is something we all have to ask ourselves. Am I refusing to give gladly and generously to the mission of Jesus Christ because of greed? Is that what's driving it ultimately? That I won't alter my lifestyle in order to be able to give something to the church and hopefully give a lot to the church or to give generously to the church. It says in Galatians 6, one who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. And that's not just talking about me. It's talking about the whole ministry of the church and our attempt to have another church, right? Trinity Presbyterian that we're planting. And to have churches planted in Germany, or plant churches planted in Africa and other places that we're working to do. It means all of us participating gladly in this Glorious mission. And so, am I guilty of the sin of greed in refusing to give to Christ's church or refusing to give very much at all? And so, this question of greed hits very close to home for us. And in an ultimate way, for those completely given over and for those that are exploiting others with false words... Paul has clear words here. Their condemnation is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. 
That's up to God. That's not us. But he does pronounce this on such exploitation of people with false words. And then sensuality. He, by referring to sensuality, he's talking about sexual license, sexual sin. He talks about it also in verse 10, indulging in the lust of defiling passion. Basically, sex outside of marriage. Sex directed to someone outside of your marriage. And we, along with all of Scripture, affirm the Bible's call to a rich relationship within marriage. In our communication, in our sharing of our mind, and our thoughts, and our emotions, and our dreams... And in sharing our bodies with each other in marriage. We affirm the full exploration and discovery of the joys and fulfillment of physical intimacy. God calls us to this. And in fact, in 2 Timothy 4, when he's dealing with people who deny this, say they deny marriage. Because they would say, oh, such pleasures would not be appropriate, would not be holy. He says, that's a doctrine of demons. That's how strongly Scripture stands for the beauty of this relationship, okay? But as this relationship, this this beautiful intimacy expresses, is meant to express this, our willingness to join our lives together and have children together and pour out our lives into each other and into our children in the hope of then seeing them have children and fellowship with them in the love of their children and on and on. And I'm speaking from experience here, right? 37 years into it so far. And one night stands have nothing to do with 37 years of commitment and joy and seeing children and grandchildren. They have nothing to do with that. That's what sexual expression is about. It's the ecstatic pleasure of celebrating the beauty and richness of a lifetime of intimacy and fruitfulness. That's what it's about. And every form of sexual license undermines that relationship. It stands against that relationship. Porn, for instance, just one of many things, but probably the thing most people struggle with. It denies and opposes that intimacy. It undermines and subverts that intimacy. Porn is a flight from relationship, a refusal of true relationship. That's why Harry Schomburg's book on this, on sexual addiction, is called False Intimacy. It's not intimacy. It's a false attempt at intimacy, a flight from intimacy. It destabilizes intimacy. There's no, in those cases, there's no corresponding intimacy of life, you see, to go with the intimacy of that expression. And on a wider scale, this intimacy and communion is what we're made for as human beings in general, right? To, to enter in on, into each other's lives on so many levels, to care for each other and to share each other's struggles and share each other's gifts, share each other's benefits and tragedies and blessings and losses and gains and, and failures and successes. 
That's what life's about is this intimate communion that we have with each other. So even on a general level, we're to experience this closeness of communion, this joy and comfort that we have in each other. And this is just intensified and expressed in ever more deeply ways in, in marriage itself. And always remember, intimacy is the very thing God is in himself. Right? The three persons of the Godhead share fully their life. They know and search each other and enjoy each other to the full. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Isn't that beautiful? The Spirit searching the depths of God as one of the persons in the Godhead. And so God is eternally and perfectly intimate And therefore boundless in his joy. That's why he radically opposes sexual license. Because he's a God who promotes true love and intimacy. He's a God who promotes true joy. He's known that joy in all eternity. And he will oppose anything that stands in the way of that beauty and that joy. It's a part of his being. How do we escape greed? How do we escape sensuality? It's put so beautifully in chapter 1, and I want to return to verse 4 that Brian treated so well. He speaks of God's glory and excellence, verse 3, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Interesting, it's promise that enables you to escape greed and sensuality. It's the promise of the goodness of this God that wins your heart to replace one affection with another. Thomas Chalmers writing several centuries ago, wrote this book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in it, he said, no matter how much you describe how ugly and terrible sin is, it's never going to be as effective as having a new affection that replaces the old affection. He's talking about an affection for God. He's talking about a love and an exhilaration and a joy in who God is and what God promises us. So that we begin to believe more and more that promise to escape sin and to enter more and more into the will of God. And it begins with the great promise of forgiveness. That even in our sensuality and our greed... There is forgiveness for us. There can be, in trusting in Christ, immediate favor and acceptance with God. An immediate embrace, just as we are, and the beginning of a change. An atmosphere, platform for our change of, of, of love and faithfulness toward us. That's a glorious part of this promise. There is forgiveness for you. You don't have to hide You can come clean. You can confess all that you struggle with before him. 
The promise that the Holy Spirit will constantly work to convince you more and more of that favor and that goodness. That's one of the great aspects of the promise. The promise of the dwelling of the Holy Spirit that will transform you, that will give you a new strength to live out His will. As he says in the Old Testament, that I will cause you to walk in his ways. It's the promise of fellowship and interaction, a communion and worship with his people. We read of the lion in 1 Peter 5 who goes about, Satan who goes about like a roaring lion to destroy. And you know lions like to carve an antelope out of the herd and then it's really vulnerable, right? It can be surrounded and killed. And that's what he loves to do in in these areas for us, to isolate you, to get you cut off from fellowship, for it to be this private struggle that you have so that you're still in hiding. And I was so impressed with a brother recently who was speaking to a group and talking about his struggle in a certain area. It wasn't this one, but it was a struggle. And he said, I refuse for this to be a private war. I refuse for this to be a private war. That's the promise you have. It doesn't have to be a private war. It's a war with God's people. It's a war where God's people gather around you and pray for you. And you gather around them and pray for them. And speak to each other. Encourage each other in these promises. So what happens going back to the beginning. Is that our lives instead of. I, instead of me being at the center of my world, think of the promises of God being at the center of your world. These comforting, encouraging, glorious promises of life here and final life afterwards in the new heavens and the new earth. These are the promises that will release us more and more gradually. And it's not going to happen altogether. It's not going to happen perfectly until we die. But it's going to happen. He's going to be saving you. He's going to be saving me. And so in the words of Paul, uh, we've dealt with many times, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. He says, now the love of Christ governs me. You see, I have a new affection that has replaced my old affections or is continually replacing those affections. So that he can say in the next verse, we no longer live for ourselves but for him who loved us and died for us. So, me being the center has been replaced with Jesus Christ being the center and his promise being the center and his love driving my life instead of just me driving my life. That's the glorious salvation of Christ. May God grant that we will believe it all the more. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, give us grace that we will trust your goodness, that we will trust that you are a God that will make us ultimately, deliriously, finally, perfectly happy. It is so hard for us to believe that. We want to hold on to so many aspects of our lives. We want to hold on to so many pockets of sin, thinking that This or that thing, I'm just going to hold on to this for some happiness. Oh, Lord, constantly turn us to you, to your glorious promise by which we may lay hold of you and your goodness. 
and escape the corruptions and the desire of the flesh in greed and sensuality. Thank you, Lord, that you will ever be saving your people. Amen.